to get to know each other, and uh, people are able to just share as much or as little as they choose about themselves. And uh, talking about the way that God changes lives, it's just great to hear people's stories. And uh, there was a, a lady uh, in the class yesterday, and uh, as she shared her story, she just talked about an extremely, like, foreign to me, horrible way of growing up. And I just, you know, felt such compassion and so forth. And at the end of kind of explaining herself and kind of where the Lord had come into her life and how and, and so forth, she just made a statement. She said, but I don't deserve the grace. I don't deserve the grace. And of course, you know, grace is undeserved. That's the whole reason that it's grace, because nobody deserves God's goodness and his love and his favor and so forth. But I got to thinking as we were, uh, and I shared with the class there, I said, you know, um, unlike you, uh, to that lady, I grew up with a godly mom and dad, grew up in church, uh, grew up with every advantage spiritually. You know, I was taught the Bible from the time I was a little kid. And uh, I had all of these advantages and so forth. And so I said to her, I said, now, if you sin and do something against God, and I sin and do something against God, who's the bigger sinner? Isn't it me? If you steal 10 grand from a bank, and I steal $10 from the offering plate, who's the bigger sinner? And I have to thinking, you know, church people, sometimes, we get to looking at other people and we say, oh, what a terrible sinner you are. When the truth of the matter is, we've had every advantage to maybe walk with the Lord for 30, 40 years. And we're still prone to wander. Who's the bigger sinner? And I just thought that it's so important for us to be able to articulate our stories because God really does work in our life and transform us and change us. And this morning, I want to just put before you in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul telling his story. Because that's what he does over and over again. He's a witness to what God did in his life. And, uh, you know, Paul went from hating Christians, trying to kill Christians, to this great evangelist, you know, sharing with anybody who will listen, the story of what God did for him. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that, you know, uh, we said that even when you experience rejection in your life from other people, you don't have to allow that rejection to control your reaction, to control your life. Lots of us experience rejection along the way. Maybe it's from our parents. And it begins to control. It hurts us. We want to be loved and we're not. We're rejected. And so we act out in a lot of different ways. But when God gets into our life, we don't have to allow rejection to continue to have that uh, grip on us. And the same thing is true about Christians when it comes to witnessing. Once we get out there and we begin to share with people, let me tell you what the difference is that Christ has made in my life, you're going to experience rejection. And it seems to me that a lot of us as Christians allow that rejection to silence us because it hurts. I mean, I'm taking a risk, I'm going out on a limb, I'm being vulnerable, I'm telling you about Christ, I'm telling you about my life, and you're laughing at me. I'm a joke to you. Well, I don't like that. And how many times do you do that, and then finally you just say, you know what, I'm just not going to bother, I'm just happy to be this little Christian, 
and God is for me, and it can just dead end here. Well, as we saw in Acts chapter 22, the Apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem, he goes to his own people, and he experiences massive rejection, right? They're trying to kill him. I mean, they're beating on him, they're kicking him, they're spitting on him, and and all the rest of it, and uh, he's totally misunderstood. He's beaten up, the soldiers have to come and rescue him and so forth, and he asks for the soldiers, can I talk to the crowd a minute? And in the midst of that, they grant him permission, and he goes to talk to the crowd, and wonder of wonders, out of all of that chaos and all of that anger, I mean, picture on TV some of the uh, protests that you see and how crazy people can get and crowd psychology, the whole thing's going on there in Jerusalem, and Paul goes to talk to them, and we saw last week that he talks in their language, and he identifies with them, and these are the people who are trying to kill him now, and he puts their zeal in the best light. He says, I understand you. I was just like you. I understand your zeal for God in trying to kill me. I mean, that's incredible to me. He doesn't let the rejection control him, but instead the love of Christ and the love for other people controls his response. And even trying to kill him, he puts it in the best light. I understand you're just being zealous for God. I was just like you. I used to kill people like me. I get it. I understand. And It's like God shows up because the entire crowd gets, the Bible says, very quiet. Very quiet. And they listen to Paul. And he starts uh, sharing with them, again, his personal story. He gets very personal. He gets very loving. And he identifies with the people, puts them in the best light. And they listen to him all the way up to verse 21 in chapter 22 of Acts. We're just going to be in Acts today. Take out your Bible. Get to Acts 22. We're just going to go through a few chapters real quick. And... uh, But in Acts chapter 22, verse 21, Paul's talking to this crowd of people. He says, and then the Lord said to me, go, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Okay, now look at this, verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices, they shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. This is not anti-Semitism. This is Jewish people misunderstanding what it means to be chosen. Remember we reviewed this last week that God chose these people to reveal himself to the world. But the Jewish people said, oh, I'm chosen, and that means you're not. That means I'm better than you. And so they kind of, as soon as Paul said, oh, God is sending me to the Gentiles, they flipped out. They're like, no way, we can't deal with this. Those are just pagan garbage type people. They're not the chosen people like us. And sometimes, you know, that... Same kind of thing, because we too, in verse 14 of chapter 22, you know, Paul is talking about his conversion, and when he was converted, here's what God said to him, and I'd say these things are exactly true about you as well. Uh, Ananias comes to him, and, and here's what he says, the God of our fathers has chosen you, Paul, to know his will. If you're a Christian, it's because God has chosen you to know his will. You can know what God's will is. And he has chosen you, Paul, to see the righteous one, to see Jesus Christ. You know, born on this side of the cross, born on this side of Jesus having been here, it's such a privilege. And Paul, he saw a bright light, but the Bible says he saw Christ. And in Corinthians, he explains, he saw with the eyes of his heart that Jesus really is the Messiah that had been talked about since Genesis all the way through the Bible. And so he says, and not only that, but you've heard words from his mouth. The same thing could be said about you and me. We were chosen. We know what God's will is. 
We've seen the Lord with the eyes of our heart. We're convinced about who he is. And we've heard words we haven't recorded in the scriptures for. The very words of Christ. And so Paul, you know, he's identifying and he's saying, this is who I am. Uh, and, and he goes on in verse 23. He says, as they were shouting and throwing off their coats and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks because he's afraid he's going to get killed. And, and in the barracks, he's, he's going to flog it out of Paul. He's going to whip him to find out, what, what did you do? You know? And Paul appeals to the fact, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And so uh, nobody could flog a Roman citizen. And Paul appeals to, to that. And you can read that whole thing. In verse 30, the next day, after all of this, the next day, the commander, uh, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and he ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble, and then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. He gets all the Jewish officials together. He's going to find out, why are you trying to kill this guy? What did he do? So he gets the Sanhedrin, which was all the official the leadership of uh, the whole Jewish community, and, um, and Paul now has another chance to tell his story. Okay, And uh, now he's before the, all the Jewish leadership. And it doesn't start out so good. Uh, Verse 1, Paul looks straight in the eyes of those people in the Sanhedrin, and he said, my brothers, again, he's respectful. He's trying to identify with them. Hey, brothers, you know? And he says this. This is a great statement. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. <laughs> is that a statement or what? Could you say that today? Would you stand before God today and say, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Wouldn't you like to be on your deathbed at some point in time, you know, and have this attitude about your life? I have done what God asked me to do. Not perfectly, but in his conscience, Paul knew that he was right and that these accusations against him were false. And he has total confidence and his conscience... And your conscience, by the way, is not your last word on what's right and wrong, right? I mean, the Bible says you can have an evil conscience, or you can have a, you can have a good conscience, and it can help you, but you can also have an evil conscience, or a hardened conscience. And your conscience isn't the last word on what's right and wrong, it's God's word is the final word on what's right and wrong. Or, uh, you know. But notice this, look at this, verse 2. As soon as Paul said that, okay, the high priest, a different Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Paul takes a shot in the chops from the religious people who hate the Gentiles and who can't stand Paul. And these are the religious people, and they whack him in the mouth. They, they smack him. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? You ever get hit for your testimony? Well, then, see, you're not... As bad as Paul, you're not, you don't have to worry that much, you know. They strike him on the mouth, and, and Paul goes off on him. He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> All right, Paul. You know, Paul's not some wimpy kind of a guy. It's just that he's humble. And, uh, and watch how this plays out, the respect Paul has. And then uh, uh, Paul says to him, you know, oh, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to your law, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who are standing near Paul said, you dare insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, brothers, I, I didn't realize that this was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. 
Paul backs right down. He's just humble. Uh, lots of people think that Paul had bad eyesight, and this would be like a little bit of testimony to that, and he, didn't, he couldn't see who it was that gave the command, and, and so on and so forth. And so, so Paul's now, you know, he's, imagine this. He's in front of all these Jewish people. They all hate him. They're trying to kill him and so forth. And so what does Paul do? Paul, verse 6, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and some of them were Pharisees, calls out in the Sanhedrin. Now, there were two major groups of, of uh, two sects, if you will, uh, of uh, people that made up the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, two different groups of different kinds of Jewish people, kind of like Democrats and Republicans, kind of like the same idea. You have a Congress that's got Democrats and Republicans, you know, and there are certain buzzwords like, you know, as soon as you bring up, if you say, let's tax the rich, bam, that just, you know, the Republican group just goes ballistic, right? That's just a, you just know that if you were there and you brought that up, you could just, you could get the attention off yourself. So, of course, that's what Paul does. Look what he says. He says, my brothers, he says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee, and I'm standing on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and there's neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up, argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces, so he ordered the troops to go down, take him away from there by force, and bring him back into the barracks. Paul gets to, never got to share his testimony with the Sanhedrin, but they had all heard it before. The following night, the Lord comes to Paul. Look what it says in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, look, take courage. I think Paul was discouraged. Remember, it's my conviction that Paul went to Jerusalem against God's will. Like he just loved his people so much that he just had to go there and one last time wanted to convert as many people as he could because they were his people. And he loved them. And, uh, but, you know, I think God had previously revealed to him that he should have gone to Rome. And so here the Lord comes alongside him and says, look, take courage, because I think Paul was discouraged, you know. And uh, as you have testified about me here in Jerusalem, you must also do in Rome. You're going to Rome, Paul. You know, and uh, let's get back on track and so forth. Well, verse 12, the next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy. They bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. Forty-plus guys get together, and they say, we will not eat another thing until we kill this turkey. And uh, so look at this, verse 16. What happens is uh, Paul's sister's kid, Paul's nephew, uh, when the son of, Paul, or, yeah, son of Paul's sister heard of this plot to kill him, he went to the barracks and told Paul. Paul sends him to the commander. The commander hears about it, commands him, don't say anything to anybody and so forth. And... Uh, Next thing you know, the commander decides, we're going to send Paul to Caesarea. We're going to get him out of town. And so off uh, Paul goes to um, Caesarea because there was a court in Caesarea. And uh, again, uh, Paul is going to have an opportunity to share his testimony in another place. And uh, he goes to Caesarea. And uh, when he comes down to um, Caesarea... Uh, there's a governor there. The governor's name is Felix. There was a Roman court there, and he's married to a woman named Drusilla. And uh, it says here uh, that Paul, verse 23, uh, then he called his two centurions, ordered them, get ready a detachment. We're sending Paul. So soldiers carried out their orders. They took Paul down. 
And uh, he's down, down there in Caesarea. He's going to stand trial in a Roman court in Caesarea uh, uh, before Felix. And uh, it says in chapter 24, verse 1, five days later, the high priest from Jerusalem, Ananias, goes down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer, and uh, they bring their charges against Paul in front of the governor. So uh, when Paul was called in, uh, Tertullius, the lawyer, presented his case before Felix, and uh, he lays out the case here and so forth. And, uh, and then uh, Paul, you know, has a chance to respond. Uh, and he's kind of saying in verse 13, he says, you know, these people, they can't prove any of these charges that they're making against me. Uh, verse 14, he says, however, I admit that I do worship the God of our fathers. I worship the God of all the Jewish people as a follower of the way. Uh, that's what Christianity was called in the early stages. It was called the way. It was a new way with God, a new way to be reconciled with God, a new testament versus the old testament and so forth. It got to be called the way. And so Paul says, you know, I will admit that I do worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. And uh, he goes on and he explains, he says, um, I believe everything that agrees with the law and is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. All through the testimonies in the book of Acts, the resurrection is key. We're constantly coming back to the resurrection of Christ, the fact that he's alive. And uh, it's a, such an important component in the gospel because, you remember, the Bible says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, your faith is a waste. If God didn't accept God, uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and you're putting your faith in that, but God never accepted it, which he showed by his by bringing him back from the dead, your faith would be useless, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. So the resurrection is, is such a key part of uh, everybody's testimony. But it's very interesting here. Um, so Felix uh, is married to a Jewish. Drusilla is Jewish. And Felix is aware of the way. And so look what happens. Verse 24, several days later, Paul stands trial, you know, and it's all formalized, and he, Felix doesn't know what to do. He's like, I'm going to wait for Lysias, who was the commander of the Romans in, in Jerusalem. I'm going to wait for Lysias to come down, he says in verse 22. Uh, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, he knew all about Christianity, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I'll decide your case. But look at this, verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. She was a Jewish. Um, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he said, that's enough for now. You ever have that happen to you? That's enough for now. Another gentle rejection. That's enough for now. He says, you can leave, Paul. When I find it convenient, he says to Paul, I'll send for you again. We'll continue this conversation some other time. At the same time, Felix was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently, and they talked together. Now, there's a great, uh, this is a great verse, verse 23. If you ever wonder, you know, if you're ever afraid to bring up your faith because you go, well, what would I talk about? You just remember these three things. This is a great thing. This is what Paul talked to Felix about. Felix is just a Roman pagan, you know, politician. And uh, Paul, when he has the chance to talk to him, he just talks about three things. He talks about righteousness. You could just 
you know, you, it's the easiest question in the world in a conversation with somebody to say, do you feel right with God? Do you feel right with God? You know, the uh, uh, Campus Crusade used to teach people to say, you know, hey, if you died tonight and stood before God, would God let you into heaven? Or why should God let you into heaven? Are you right with God? Are you righteous? And, of course, this leads right to the gospel. It leads right to Jesus Christ. Leads, there's only one way you can be right with God, and it's through the cross. And, and so many people will say, oh, yeah, I think I'm a good person. I hope I'm good enough when I die and so forth. And you can just get into a, a very meaningful conversation. Share your own story. Hey, I used to think that. I used to think I was a good kid, grew up in a Christian home. Yeah, but I didn't know Christ. Now I found out God says nobody ever goes to heaven or is right with God on the basis of being a good person. You're just not good enough. I don't care who you are. really doesn't matter. But there is a way to be righteous. And now you're into this great conversation. The second thing Paul talks about is self-control. He talks to Felix, and self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways you can get into that discussion real easy is just, you know, are you enjoying life? Are you the person you want to be? Are you having a good time in life? Because one of the gifts that God will put in you is self-control. He'll expose who you really are and give you the ability to change. Are you the person you really want to be? And if not, why not? Who's controlling you? What's controlling you? How would you like to be set free? How would you like to know the truth and have the truth set you free from your old life and become the person that God made you to be? Do you have self-control? Most people are struggling with some kind of you know, problem and wishing something was different and struggling with you know, some area of their life socially, family-wise, you know, money-wise. There's always issues that, that people... Are, are you... Do you have self-control? And the last thing Paul says is, hey, are you ready for the second coming of Christ? You know, there's going to be a judgment. You know, the God who made you says that someday at the end of life, we're going to stand before him and be evaluated with what we did with the life that he gave us. Are you ready? Are you looking forward to it? Because if you're a believer, guess what? You know what that judgment is for? According to the Bible for a believer, it's for rewards. That's all it's for. Our sins are already gone. But my goodness, if you're not a believer... You're shaking in your boots to think of standing before the living God and only having your life to offer instead of the cross and the blood of Christ. You're going to be in trouble. So if you ever get in a witnessing situation, all you can do is remember those three things. Righteousness, self-control. Righteousness is about, you know, at a certain point, trusting Christ and, and, and becoming a new creation. Self-control is about living today. And the judgment is about the future. Past, present, and future. It's easy to remember. You could get into that conversation, you'd be talking all night. And that's what Paul does with Felix. And Felix, he gets, Paul gets rejected. Felix like, no, that's enough. And so it says Felix was afraid. Big Roman governor, politician, in charge of everything, ordering people around, telling them what to do. But when I hear the truth of God, afraid. I can't talk about this anymore. You go away. I'll call for you when it's convenient for me. You ever... Share Christ in a setting like that, and people just say the same exact thing. That's enough for now. Uh, let's change the subject. Let's talk about something else. Let's move on, and so on. So don't be surprised when you experience that kind of rejection. Now, look at the next verse, verse 27. This is sad to me. When two years had passed, two years Paul is detained in Jerusalem. Two years, right? When two years passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus, new governor. 
Terms up, you're out, new guy in. And um, look at what it says. Uh, was succeeded by Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Two years. It's a long time, especially for Paul, who's you know, always moving around and so forth. Uh, and so anyway, so Festus comes on the scene, chapter 25 of Book of Acts. Three days after arriving on the job, three days after he takes over the governorship here, uh, he goes from Caesarea up to Jerusalem. And uh, verse 2, where the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, appeared before him and presented him the charges against Paul. This has been two years in the running. He goes to Jerusalem. He's the new guy on the block. Verse 3, they urgently request Festus to do as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. They're still, a couple years later, they're going to kill him. So can you just transfer his trial here to Jerusalem and so forth? So Festus is new. He doesn't probably have the whole history. He doesn't really get it and so forth. And so he goes back to Paul and uh, he says, Paul, would you mind, you know, like going back to Jerusalem and uh, you can stand trial before me there. Maybe we can resolve this case, get it off the docket here. And uh, Paul says, look, uh, verse 8, he says, uh, I've done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem, stand trial before me on these charges? Paul said, I'm already standing before you and Caesar's court, which you represent. Verse 11, if, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And uh, Festus, after he conferred with his counsel, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And again, Paul is playing his, you know, Roman card. So he doesn't go back to Jerusalem, so he avoids, you know, uh, that attempt on his life. And again, but again, feel the rejection of his own people, okay? A few days later, a new player comes into the picture, uh, verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice, Bernice uh, arrive in Caesarea to pay... Uh, their respects to Festus. Uh, Agrippa was the king of the northern part of Israel, but he was also Jewish, so they put him in charge of the temple. So Agrippa was, you know, o to oversee the temple. He was Jewish, and I think the Romans probably figured that because he was Jewish, he would understand Jewish matters, so we're going to put him over the northern part, but also uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Now this uh, Agrippa, it's Herod Agrippa, uh, his uh, great-grandfather was Harold, Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy who was responsible for killing all the babies when Jesus first came into the world to try to get rid of Jesus. Remember, he killed all the kids two years and under, right as part of the Christmas sort of story. Uh, that was his great-grandfather. Uh, his father, Agrippa's father, is the guy who um, murdered James. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. And his uncle, Agrippa's uncle, was the other Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. So what I'm trying to tell you is that this guy, Agrippa, was like part of the Roman Mafia family. Okay? And, uh, yeah, he's, you know, a politician, part of like the Mafia family. And here's, it gets worse. Uh, Bernice is his girlfriend, but is also his sister. She's well known and is the source of a lot of gossip and very scandalous. But the king is very proud, you know. She was also the mistress of some other famous people. And uh, she's a source of all kinds of gossip. And Jewish law, of course, absolutely detests incest. There's all kinds of things. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 talk about that. 
And Drusilla, remember Felix's wife, Drusilla, she's a sister to these two. So she's the source of some of this information. Anyway, so Agrippa, he's Jewish, but he serves Rome. And later on, when the Jews rebel against Rome in A.D. 66, uh, Agrippa has to choose sides, if you will, and he sides with the Romans, and so the Jews, you know, consider him a traitor and hate him. But anyway, Festus has this problem, Paul. What am I going to do with Paul, this unresolved case? And, and this guy, Agrippa, who's Jewish, comes, and so Festus looks for Agrippa to help him resolve the issue with uh, Paul. And so in um, chapter 20, uh, 25 and verse 18 and 19, uh, when his accusers get up to speak, um, uh, here's what's going on. Festus is explaining to Agrippa the history of Paul's case to bring, Agrippa, uh, bring a, the king up to speed. And so here's what he says. He says, when his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes that I expected, Festus says. Instead, I love this way he says this. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, who Paul claims was alive. So Festus is explaining to the king, hey, here's the problem. I mean, there's a dead guy named Jesus, you know, and Paul thinks he's alive. That's the way he describes the resurrection. That's how the, you know, secular mind thought and so forth. And uh, so... Um, Look what Festus says to the king. He says, I was at a loss how to investigate these kinds of things. So I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem, stand trial on these charges. When Paul made his appeal, he, he held over for the emperor's decision. So I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa says to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Another witnessing opportunity. I would like to hear this guy myself. Tomorrow you'll hear him, Festus says. Now picture this scene. I think this is just, you know, uh, verse 23 and I hope this helps, you know, with your own uh, witnessing. In verse 23, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice come with great pomp. Okay, so just picture that, all right? I'm thinking King's got his robe on, probably in purple. Bernie, his sidekick, is all decked out, you know? King's got his crown, bunch of rings on his finger, you know? And uh, probably got a scepter, you know, like the King's had and so forth, and Great pomp, okay? And uh, they go to the audience room with the high-ranking officers. There were five, like, battalions uh, of uh, military types, you know, and they're probably all decked out in their dress uniforms. They probably got soldiers with them with, you know, uh, standing on guard and so forth. And all the leading men of the city, all the politicians with their three-piece suits and bow ties, okay? Or, so here's this hall all filled with this, you know, great pomp and so forth. And at the command of Festus, Paul's brought in. <laughs> now, there's other places in the Bible that say that Paul was not very much to look at to begin with. In 1 Corinthians, you know, he's described. So he got all this pomp and sorry, all this power, all this worldly, whatever the finest and best is, and here comes Paul into the midst of that. You ever feel like that when you're called to witness? Maybe you have an opportunity, you know, to come in with your boss and there's a golden opportunity. The Spirit's prompting you to speak and tell your story and you have this, but you're thinking to yourself, oh man, I couldn't do that. You ever feel like, you know, small and you think, well, who am I to tell my story and to witness to Christ because this is such power and pomp. And what a mistake that is because maybe God has given us that very opportunity for just such a time. 
I remember one time I was asked to do a funeral in an Episcopalian church, high Episcopalian church. Everybody was decked out in robes and carrying things and hats and the whole thing, you know. And there I came with my Bible. And I had the opportunity to preach the gospel in this church. But I felt intimidated by all of the hoopla. But we're talking about the Son of God here. You know, who's higher than the Son of God? Oh, boy. Um, so Festus looks for some help, you know, and uh, Paul gets an audience with the king, and you got this big pomp and circumstance, and again, he gets to tell his testimony. And if you work through this, you know, uh, I think when Paul met Jesus, two things happened to him. Number one, it was really cemented in his mind that Jesus was alive because Jesus was talking to him. And the second thing that happened to Paul is he realized that if you mess with a Christian, you offend Jesus. Because Jesus says to Paul there, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Paul isn't persecuting. He's persecuting Christians. You mess with a Christian. You're messing with Jesus. And Paul got so uh, impressed with those two realities, it just changed everything for him. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to skip over this because we're out of time, but Paul gets these, my point is this, Paul gets these great opportunities to share his story and to share the gospel in the context. And if you read through this, you'll see he gets another one, you know, and, and another one and another one. But here's a couple of conclusions that I just wanted to draw from all, going through Acts and seeing these opportunities that Paul has. Number one, there's, there's two calls that come into your life from Jesus. The first call is come to me, and the second is go to them. Come to me and go to them. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Go into the world and make disciples with what I give you. Come to me and go to them. You ever go to a restaurant and a guy behind the counter says, is that um, for here or to go? You ever have that? Maybe you don't go to those kind of restaurants, but, you know, is that for here or to go? And I, th I think it's a great question for church. When you come to church today, is this for here? Is this just for us? Or is this to go? Is the gospel for us? Is the cross for us? Is Jesus for us? Yes, but also to go. It's not just for us, it's to go. We're called to be witnesses, to go and make disciples into the world and to speak up. And Paul does this and does this and does this. Two observations about Paul. Number one, you follow through what Paul's encounter with all these people. There's nobody in these texts who's converted. There's nobody who steps across the line for all Paul's witness. This is the great apostle Paul doing his best to be a witness, sharing what God is doing and what Christ has done in his life. And there's nobody who's converted here through these chapters of Acts. I want to say, don't let rejection control you. You know what? This is all recorded in the Bible. You know who noticed all these conversations? God. You know who's going to use these conversations, whether they result in conversions in Paul's life or not? God. We're called to just be faithful. And you don't know how God will use the seeds that we plant in other people's lives. And then the other observation, which I think is the most important thing that you could take away from today. Paul is just speaking out of who he really is. There's nobody with a gun to Paul's head saying, you should be a witness. Paul can't help himself because of the difference Christ made in his life. 
because it was so real, because it was the essence of his identity, because it's who he was, he couldn't stop talking about it. I think the key to evangelism is enjoying Jesus. It's not some guilt trip. It's not some program. It's like this becomes so real. It's your identity you can't help but talk about. Isn't it a natural instinct that when something good happens to you, you share it? You ever have a woman have a baby and say, yeah, I had a baby. (laughs) Look at my baby. You ever have somebody get married and they say, yeah, I got married. Here's my spouse. We're all excited. We're all proud. Ever somebody get a bonus and they come home from work? Well, maybe they don't want to tell their wife they got a bonus, but, you know. (laughs) You got to tell somebody. It's a natural instinct that when something good is really happening to you, you've got to share your joy. That's witnessing. That's witnessing. That's it. It's that the reality of Christ becomes so much a part of who we are that it spills over. It's like the river that runs in and through us. And I, I just don't think that, you know, guilt trips and asking people to, you know, just be unreal about their faith is where it's at. It's just being real. You know what, for the Apostle Paul, this is identity. You cannot define Paul apart from Christ. And we ought to not be able to be defined apart from Christ ourselves. And when that happens, you can't help but be in situations where people are hurting or uh, people are broken or people are confused or people are believing lies and deceived where you won't speak up. Because who you are. And that's how Paul became this great witness. Even though nobody came to Christ. Don't let rejection control you. Let the love of Christ control you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, I just love reading through this. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he's our hero. Probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. Great Christian thinker. And here, witnessing opportunity after witnessing opportunity after witnessing. Paul's got his story down. He tells it over and over again. He uh, tries to identify with the people and make himself, you know, uh, on par and see people in the best light. Does everything he can. He becomes all things to all people in the hopes that some would be influenced to embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior. May we follow in his steps. May we just enjoy our, our relationship with you so much that it's just natural to spill over into our... I mean, what's... How long can you talk about, you know, oh, how horrible it is I have to pay bills... Oh, how horrible it is I have to go to work. Oh, I can't wait to retire. Oh, the, isn't there anything more to our lives that's really positive and exciting? And it's you, Lord. It's you. It's, it's the great hope that you've placed within us, the great freedom that you've given us through forgiveness, the great life that you've given us by your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.